You are listening to episode 70 of In Film We Trust. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. In our time discussing and deep diving movies, we've covered films from a variety of decades. We've put them into historical context, examining the circumstances in which they were made and pondering how important the relative time period was. Well, as it turns out, we've only checked out two films from that most significant of decades, the 1960s. So today, we're hopping into our homemade time machine and setting the clocks back 55 years to shine the spotlight on The Swimmer. Based on a short story by John Cheever and starring one of cinema's most iconic actors, Burt Lancaster, a man with a smile so famous he actually had a nickname for it, it was met with a lukewarm reception at its time of release but today stands as an enduring cult classic. A captivating examination of… well, quite a few things as it turns out. The short story itself has been the subject of constant analysis and speculation over the years, and with the help of yet another special guest, it's time for us to grab a cold drink and don our swimming trunks, as we quite literally dive into the deep end to try and navigate the dark and sinister waters of The Swimmer. So here's some behind-the-scenes information for you all. Whenever I recommend a film to Wayne, it A either takes him months to get round viewing it, or B, he flatly rejects it. So, like with this episode, I have taken to choosing certain films to force him into watching them, and I can think of no better guest than Felicia, host of the Seeing Movies podcast, to force Wayne into viewing Frank Perry's 1968 film, The Swimmer. So Felicia, would you like to tell our audience this is your favourite film of all time? It is, yeah, which is hard to pick, what, just one, right? Yeah, so for somebody like Wayne, who is incredibly hard to get to watch any film <laughs> that is, isn't on his I- itinerary, what would you say to somebody who's not saw this film? Here is the, you know, here's the rules. Watch this film. Why should they watch it? This one's a tricky one because you don't really want to give too much away. You kind of want to give them just the basis of... If they know who Burt Lancaster is and be like, hey, this is a Burt Lancaster movie, he's going through it. <laughs> Pre-70s, he's in his 50s, he looks great, and he's swimming. I usually just tell people it's Burt Lancaster swimming through pools, and he's having drinks, and he's partying with people. But there's <laughs> something going out, you know, something else going on. Um, that's if they know Burt Lancaster. I can't assume that everyone does know who he is. So I say, hey, do you like American 70s films? This is the precursor to all the great films from the 70s that you like watch this and you'll understand how they were able to make such great you know independent american films uh in that era because you know this is previous to that so that's usually what i go for and i try not to give too much away from the story because it's a very simple story but as you watch it you realize okay there's layers to what's going on here So So basically what you're saying is your recommendation for this film is it's got a smiling, half-naked Burt Lancaster in it. (laughs) Basically, yeah. (laughs) If that doesn't entice you, then I don't know. Okay, so Felicia, in that intro, I said, Felicia from the Seeing Movies podcast. Mm -hmm. What exactly is the Seeing Movies podcast? And kind of why did you decide to start that podcast? 
Yeah. So my podcast essentially is a celebration of directors and cinematographers that I really love. And what I do is each month I have a different series on and it's a weekly podcast, but I have a monthly series on a specific director or cinematographer. And I invite my friends on to pick a film within that artist filmography for us to chat about. And it's less of a deconstruction of the film itself. Obviously, we talk about the major beats of the film, but it's more so talking about the film as it relates to the director or cinematographer's body of work to be like, this is where they were in their career, why they were making these type of films and, you know, what led them to make this one and so on. So it's basically just me nerding out about uh, my favorite people. (laughs) So it's like people are like, oh, you're you're talking about like the best films, you know? And I'm like, but yeah, those are all my favorite type of films. So I've been trying to do podcasts on and off, you know, through the pandemic and so on. And just nothing ever stuck. And one day I was like, I'm watching all these movies. I've been watching all these movies for so long. I might as well do something with the knowledge <laughs> that I've acquired. So I figured maybe start a podcast. Let's see how long it lasts. Because I believe you studied film, was it film history at university? I did. How much has that informed your podcast so far? I mean, I think it very much informs the way I talk on the podcast and the way I approach it. I want it to be as accessible as possible. I hear mixed things from people being like, it's like positive, but they're like, sometimes I feel like I don't know where to start with a certain director. And my thing is to try and make it so that you're never talking down to people. It's just like, hey, I'm so excited about this movie. You've never seen it. That's great. You get to watch it the first time. So something like that. Yeah, and you mentioned it's a celebration of directors and cinematographers. Now, everybody knows directors. Everybody mm-hmm. can name off you know, 25 directors off the top of their head. But I feel cinematographers, they're like among the unsung heroes yes. of the film business. Because when you talk about a shot looking gorgeous, a film looking gorgeous, the distinctive look, the cinematographers are largely to thank for that. So what is it that built your appreciation for the great cinematographers and the great cinematography in the business? When I was... In high school, applying to schools, originally I was applying for photography to go to university for photography because I wanted to be a cinematographer. Obviously realized that my photography is not as strong as I would hope. So I I pivoted and went to film history. But cinematography is always my main interest when I'm watching a film. Also writing, like I, I loved watching the writing and then it goes, it's tears for me. It's like cinematography, writing directing acting type of deal um so the first cinematographer that i covered on my show so far was robbie mueller and his work was what Jim really kind of yeah ben vendors did his work really was like opened my eyes to what a cinematographer is capable of so what was the actual films that kind of informed your taste felicia very early mm-hmm. on what was it kind of grabbed your love of the medium that's an interesting question because my both my parents are huge movie people so we just always grew up with movies in the house but i think one of the first ones that made me want to go to film school was watching fritz lang's m okay Um, Mm. i really that just kind of blew my mind because i never seen anything like it at the time and then right after that i would have seen double indemnity billy wilder Great film. Okay, so, you, yeah. so you're on like the whole film noir thing. So that bleeds into mm-hmm. your love of cinematography, the love of photography. Yeah. Is that kind of what, what what came first? Was it the photography or the film? 
I would say it's probably the film and then realizing, okay. oh, there are different, you know, not having seen grow- growing up with those type of films. I was a goth kid, so watching those goth type movies, you know, the shadows and like <laughs> that's what film noir is it's basically a goth movie. And being like, oh, this light is and exactly darkness, what right? I want. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so watching those films and being like, okay, why does it look like this? And then studying film noir and then going back and tracking back to be like, who shot these movies and so on. Is there a, <laughs> is there an inherent level of the old? Do you feel yes. almost out of step? Yeah, I don't know what it is about older films um, that I really love other than just my background in film history. I think for me, I just always want to track back and make my way up into the present, knowing that I will die before that happens. <laughs> like I will never catch up to it. But I'm like, there's just so much out there that people don't talk about as often. You obviously get your big ones. Like M is a big one. You know, Metropolis is a big one if we're talking for its line. But I just always want to track back and see why it was that these directors are making films the way they are now, vice versa. I was going to ask, is it something to do with the fact that if you grow up in a certain time period, you almost invariably grow up with the films of the time? Because that's like, it's like the music at the time. That's what's playing on the radio. That's what your friends are talking about at school. So do Mm -hmm. you think these earlier films are more interesting to you because no one's talking about them? No one in your social circles is discussing them. So you want to go back because it's almost like a completely different world, like a hidden world away from what you're used to. I think so. Like, I am a kid of the 90s, but obviously what I remember the most is the 2000s. So, like, the big <laughs> films that we were all talking about, which would have been ni- late 90s films, were, like, Fight Club, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. You know, those are the ones that people are talking about all the time. American Beauty. Yeah, exactly. But, like, as much as people kind of rip on those movies now, it's like those, someone like a Tarantino, I always say Tarantino was a gateway for a lot of people to get out yeah. and, like, be like oh he was inspired by this i mean i haven't moved on from tarantino i like his work but something like that was able to go back i've always been interested in be like i like to listen to directors speak about yeah you know what's inspired them and be like oh they've mentioned this you know movie and adding to my list of just and then i went up going to film school and it's like it's film history so we're going from like the silent era to I don't know what would have been the modern one. I think we might have watched something from the 2000s at some point. But it's just always just going back to see the way art has, you know, grown. Well, that's a good that's a good point you bring up with Tarantino. Do you not think he's, he's kind of made people, especially our age, because we're similar ages, made the audience hyper aware of the lineage of cinema, the history of cinema, the influences of cinema, because most of his films, you know, they have a depth of knowledge in film itself. And, you know, it's self-reverential for in many aspects. Do you think that was a big influence on you? Yeah, for sure. Even I, I love a director in like Scorsese. I love a director who is just such a huge movie nerd and makes a point of being like, hey, you need to go back and watch these movies. Uh, because there's some directors, you not only when you're watching, but just in general, where you're like, do you even watch movies? Because <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem like you do. Um, but I just love one who is just like such a champion for the films that not only form them, but like genres of films or eras of films that are not top of mind for a lot of people. 
so like the kind of director who is you know kind of steeped in film history and is aware of like his predecessors. So I remember reading about how when Paul Thomas Anderson did There Will Be Blood, I think he got his cast and crew to watch The Treasure of the Sierra Madre like over and over again. I think he watched it a lot and it really informed the tone of the film. So you're talking about the kind of people who they don't just get into movies for a laugh. They get into it because they have this inherent deep-seated love of it, not just a love of the filmmaking, but a love of the filmmakers who came before them. Exactly. And this film, 1968, it's coming out a crucial period because, you know, we're transitioning to the whole new Hollywood period. And as you said, you had your Martin Scorsese's or your Peter Bogdanovich's who are very much indebted to cinema of the past. And, you know, if you go to the 90s and you have Tarantino, like we've just mentioned. But what strikes you about 1968? Because I was looking at 1968, you know, what what were some of the films? And it turns out it was a quite a big year. We had 2001 A Space Odyssey. We had Once Upon a Time in the West. We had Lindsay Anderson's terrific film over here called If. We had Steve McQueen's Bullet. And here's a weird little bit of trivia. We also had Ice Station Zebra. So why mm. does Ice Station Zebra come into fruition to this episode? Well, the famous mogul, Howard Hughes, when he holed himself up in the hotel, when he was going crazy, just when he was just drinking milk in the nude, he would re-watch over and over again Ice Station Zebra. And look, Scorsese made that terrific film, The Aviator. I know it's not the most regarded Scorsese film, but it's always been one of my favourite Scorsese films. I've always really dug that film. I like it too. It was one of the later ones I had to catch up on, actually, and thinking I might have to break this up in two because it's a bit long, and I just sat through the whole thing. (laughs) And it was just like, that's my favourite type of, uh, that's my favorite era of Hollywood. Um, mm-hmm. So the I golden love that. age. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So some yeah. films get it well like this, and then others not so <laughs> good. Well, are you saying Warren Beatty's version didn't do so great? <laughs> no, of, I was thinking. I was thinking just of that era. I was thinking yeah. of Mank. Mm-hmm. Did you not like Mank? No, I didn't mind it. What did you not like about uh, Mank by David Fincher? So. I think it was just that you've got such a great story and I have to respect that. I know that it was his father's script and he didn't change anything. So I have to respect that. It's just that it's such an interesting story and era and just the pacing was off for me and it was quite boring and it didn't need to be because it looked beautiful. The performances were great, but it just dragged and I was like, they needed to, they, he probably needed to do some changes to kind of pep it up. I think my problem with it was it kind of suffered on its focus because we're talking about Herman Mankiewicz and how he wrote Citizen Kane, one of the most revered screenplays ever. And there's huge stretches where, I know you want to give kind of historical context, but a lot of the lead characters, they're talking about Upton Sinclair, mm-hmm. played by Bill Nye, the science guy of all people. <laughs> but uh, there's like huge stretches where they're talking to him like, wait, I thought this was about Herman Mankiewicz. What's going on here? So like, I liked it overall, but I thought it did suffer from, like you say, pacing issues and from the kind of bizarre focus, like the tangents it kept going on. Yeah. But what are some of your favorite golden age of Hollywood films? Oh my god. Um Casablanca. <laughs> I I've actually only seen Casablanca probably once, to be honest. But I love anything Joan Crawford, you know, Mildred Pierce, Flamingo Road, Humoresque, Possessed. I like Betty Davis. It's usually me when I think about it, I think about certain <laughs> actors and I'm like, okay. Yeah. Even Burt Lancaster, he was in a lot. Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas were in a lot of great films together. Yeah. But like I usually stray towards like my two favorite genres are film noir and westerns. 
This film is neither of those. But <laughs> no, but I love yeah, those we've got the Burke Lancaster tie, I suppose. Yeah. Exactly. Was um, Burke Lancaster's first film not The Killing, which was a film noir? Yeah, it was The Killers. Um, okay. Which is the Ernest Hemingway adaptation. There's yeah. The Killing, but there's The Killers also. Uh, yeah, so it was him and Ava Gardner. It's great. Not my favorite noir either, but it's a good time. How is it you first came across The Swimmer? Because you talk about it being your favorite film. I assume it's been your favorite film for quite a number of years. So what was it like coming across it the first time? Did you find a DVD, a VHS? Was it on TV one night? How did you actually discover this film? So as I was going through Burt Lancaster's filmography, and I try and think about this all the time, like what was the film that turned me on to Burt Lancaster? And I still to this day don't know it just was like a growing thing where i was like i like this guy's style of acting i kind of want to finish his filmography so i'm going through and i kind of was going through chronologically as much as i could in terms of availability and it got to the swimmer and didn't really read anything about it it would happen to be streaming on the criterion channel and i was like okay let me put it on figured i would like it because it's Burt lancaster didn't think it'd be anything special had never heard about the short story put it on and maybe like 10 15 minutes in i was like hooked it was like immediately i was into the film and right after it was done i had to sit for a while where i was like i have never seen anything like this yeah. I think I'm in the same boat. I mean, it was just on late at night once. I, we have so many movies over here, which is, you mm-hmm. know, they play a lot of older films. I don't know if you have it over in the States. You probably do. But it was on late at night and I watched it. I hadn't heard of it before. And I, like you, I hadn't even read the short story by Cheever at the time. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go with this. And after a while, I was like, okay, this is getting strange. And it's it goes into this surrealistic aspect. You don't expect it to go in for the kind of movie you think you're stepping into. And I like how it kind of deviates from what your expectations are. But after you watched this film, did and you said at the time you'd never read John Cheever, what did you think when you went back and read John Cheever's short story? I mean, I was just really amazed with what Eleanor Perry was able to do with the script. And like sometimes with a short story, when it's get when it gets turned into a film, you can really feel that they're stretching it. And I never feel that with this. It just adds so much layers to that character. I don't want to say it's better than the short story, but I think are you saying it it without saying it? (laughs) Um, They're both very, great pieces of work but i really yeah. have to commend you know eleanor for what she was able to do and stretching that out because if i had read the short story first i don't know that i would have imagined this film from it i feel in terms of adaptation there was a kind of interesting inversion because usually when say a book gets adapted to a film the number one criticism tends to be either like they missed the point of it or they didn't include a lot because with a book you can take hours reading through a book but with a film it's over in a few hours so it's interesting adapting a short story because you've got a very small amount of material like you say you have to kind of drag it out to feature length I really enjoyed the short story I got kind of that Cormac McCarthy vibes where everything's very it's very immediate there's a lot of immediacy in it like there's very little dialogue the sentences are kind of very to the point yeah. beautiful language as well like I was, I was saying to Liam earlier I said you know a lot of bit 
bits of it sent me to the dictionary and be like, I've never heard that word before. But looking at the context, you can kind of work out what he was meaning. So it was a great short story. I think they included a lot of the best elements in it. There were some things, one or two things in the short story that's not in the film, but I don't think it's to the well, film's detriment. Well, Chief is an interesting guy. I mean, he was referred to as the Chekhov of the suburbs. And in many people's eyes, he almost stereotyped the suburbs. Like when you think of the suburbs now, he was the guy who kind of, you know, you colored that in for us all. And a collection I've got, which The Swimmer is a part of, from 1979, his collection, The Collected Short Stories, were published, which won the Pulitzer Prize of that year. Now, Eleanor Perry, the writer of this film and the husband of director Frank Perry, she said she started reading Cheever 12 years before filming, and she found his work so sexual, so beautiful, that it moved her completely. And you kind of see that, as you said, Wayne, with his language, it's very florid, it's very, you know, flash in certain aspects, but it, it speaks to something on a on a human level, because I think ultimately this film, The Swimmer, or the short story, The Swimmer, is a very human portrayal, it's a very human descent, if you want to say. It's speaking on a very human level. Would you agree there, Felicia? It is, and I, it's it's funny because most people I know probably haven't read the short story, but watching the film they're kind of confused about what's happening. They're like, I wasn't expecting it to be this real because it starts off in a very kind of, sure, we'll get into it, but like starts off in a very kind of sitcom-y way, the way they're speaking to each other, like a 50s American sitcom. And the tone is weird. So you think it's going to be a joke. So when it's not a joke, (laughs) they're confused about how real the story gets. When I watched this the first time, I watched it twice to make this episode. The first time I watched it, I watched it with my wife. And you know the conversation at the start where we first meet Ned and he's talking to the friends and all hungover. She said to me after that scene ended, she says, a lot of the performances and the dialogue and the way it's spoken felt very wooden, but it felt like that was the point. It's like they were, deli- it was like almost like they were living mannequins, the way they were acting and delivering well, the dialogue. Well, that kind of ties in because this film is making very clear i would say points about contemporary society at the time and the preceding 1950s but cheever look you said this film starts and everybody's drunk everybody's drink sodden now john cheever was a famous alcoholic and his mood could be summed up as this because i think his journals came out at some point you know decades later and john cheever said there is a path through the woods i can take this rainy morning but instead i will take the path to the pantry and mix a martini (laughs) which i thought is a (laughs) That's that's a great line, and it kind of sums up his doom and gloom approach to things. But when he was writing The Swimmer, and it didn't come easy, John Cheever would typically write his short stories, whether that was 40 pages or so, in three days. So he's quite a fast writer. But The Swimmer, which is only, I think, 12 pages, took him two whole months. And he said, while uh, writing The Swimmer, I have been on the spiritual, alcoholic, and emotional ropes for six weeks, and I don't know how to get off. To ration my drinks is one way, but this sometimes amounts to nothing but a struggle. I could go to a shrink, I suppose. I could get more exercise. Yeah, didn't we all? <laughs> this is kind of back in the day when you talk about the 60s. You, it's the kind of inextricable link between writers and drinking. Because you think of the most famous writers like Cheevers, like people like Faulkner, Brendan Behan, Ernest Hemingway. You always just imagine them with a glass in their hand. My favourite quote, I think, drinking and writing was from Brendan Behan, who was a famous Irish playwright. 
he didn't say I'm a writer with a drinking problem. He says I'm a drinker with a writing problem. I love that that, that great juxtaposition of language there. I love that quote. That's also one of my favorite quotes. I tried to pull that uh, in my youth, but I was like, I'm not actually writing, so. <laughs> I, I found that a few drinks does kind mm-hmm. of loosen you know loosen the mind up because uh, I think it was Hemingway that said uh, write drunk edit sober yeah. <laughs> so that's that's so that's good because you know when you get drunk and like mm-hmm. the words just kind of pour out of your mouth it's kind of similar to when you're writing it might not be good but at least it kind of it, you know it lubricates your do you think uh, we could podcast that way podcast drunk edit sober <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so, but that, but then you'd be frustrated because like this is just incoherent shit. Why the hell did we say any of this? <laughs> the argument could be made there, Wayne. <laughs> uh, I, I suppose so. Yeah, we'll do this like a special episode when we're just like shit faced <laughs> the whole time. So, Felicia, like 1968, the swimmer. Do you want to give everybody a quick synopsis of this film? Because it's on the surface, it's very easy, it's very entry level. So I don't think it'll take much time to sum it up. So we've got Burt Lancaster as Ned Merrill, and he decides he's going to swim the Lucinda River, which is essentially pools spanning across his neighborhood or his neighbors, and he wants to swim home. There's these swim pools that are in the suburbs of Connecticut, and he calls them the Lucinda River because there are these, you know, dis- disconnected pools that make up, is it a 12 mile span or something? There's Certain amount, but his wife, his ex-wife, or his wife, let's not spoil anything, is called Lucinda, so he christens it the Lucinda River. But, interestingly, let's let's talk about the location and the milieu of this society. We've said uh, John Cheever, the writer of the short story, he is the Chekhov of the suburbs. So, this film is very suburban. It was filmed in the summer of 1966 in Westport, Connecticut, across 13 swimming pools rented from locals. Now, Cheever's hometown <laughs> of Ossining was considered... Now, Ossining, here's a little tie-in for people. Ossining is where Don Draper lives in Mad Men because the creator of Mad Men, uh, Matthew Wagner, was such a huge fan of John Cheever's work and there is many parallels between John Cheever's short stories and the TV show Mad Men. But Ossining, the place in New York, it was too noisy. Primarily air traffic got in the way. California was in consideration, but it would would have lacked the validity so essential to the film. So Frank Perry, who lived in his youth or a part of his youth in Westport, Connecticut, chose this as the filming location. And this kind of has an emotional tie to to Frank Perry because he also studied at the Westport Country Playhouse in theatre. So that's why they ended up going for Westport, Connecticut. I do like the idea that when they were renting pools from these locals, Burt Lancaster went to these people's <laughs> houses in costume and in character and just asked if he could swim in the pools. Like, well, when Burt Lancaster turns up at your house and asks to swim in your pool, you let yeah. him swim in your pool. I mean, I wish. You yeah. can dream, Felicia. You the tiny can dream. blue shorts? Is that what's doing it for you? <laughs> it's everything, yeah. but the blue shorts don't hurt the situation. I remember watching this film thinking, man, the costume department must have had the easiest time with Lancaster shorts because did you not have like he had like thirteen pairs of swimming shorts the whole time, and occasionally he has a towel, but other than that, that's pretty much all yeah. he wears. In, in addition to Bert Lancaster turning up at one of the locals' doors, the locals were also paid five hundred dollars a day, and on the guarantee that the crew used mobile toilet facilities so they didn't go traipsing through the houses of the locals, which is kind of considerate, I have to say. That's more considerate than I would have expected back then. I thought they would just, you know, just went into their house and even made themselves a yeah. drink while they were making the film because a martini, perhaps. 
<laughs> or a bull shot. <laughs> yeah, is it mostly gin that he drinks? Because this is one of those films where drink seems to be unlimited, an unlimited supply. Liam and I talked about the film Swingers mm-hmm. some time ago, and I remarked, isn't it funny how when you watch a film like this, people go to a house party, they just go up to a bar and start helping themselves to drinks. Felicia, help us out here. Is this an American thing? Because I've never gone to a house party where I can just make myself drinks. It's BYOB in this country. You bring your own drink. You don't just go up to someone's bar or to someone's fridge Wait, I have. and grab your own drink. So have is this you something... Not, have you never been to a house party when people offer you drinks, Wayne? To be yeah. fair, I was a student at the time, so people probably expect you to just bring something cheap. So is that something you've had, Felicia, people just offering you drinks um, at parties? I don't know about in the States, but in Canada, typically it's the unwritten rule is that everyone brings their own drinks, but the host will supply at least enough for one drink per person, one to two drinks. So they'll have extra. They, depending on your age range, I don't know if you're going to have liquor out for people, but you might have bottles of wine. You might have cheap beer as a host, and then people bring their own additional beers. You're not supplying all the alcohol for everyone, but you should have at least one or two drinks available for each guest. To be fair, I'm talking about student parties where you kind of turn up when you're yeah. just anonymous, like <laughs> no one even really notices you arriving. So you just kind of turn up and then start milling among people in the crowd. So that's probably why I wasn't offered anything. Oh, they didn't want possible. me to be there. That's very possible way. But look, let, <laughs> let's get Felicia into our wheelhouse here. Felicia, you are a student of cinematography, a student of photography, and this film is photographed by David L. Quaid. Now, admittedly, I do not know much about this cinematographer. Can you tell us a little about him? So David L. Quaid, he didn't do too much. Like the the swimmer would have been his biggest one, which is shocking because I think the cinematography is great in mm. this film, uh, especially like the opening scenes of just the following through the forest. And there's a scene with Julie and Ned where they're talking. She's talking about, you know, when she used to babysit for his kids and we just kind of get clips of them talking with the voiceover that I really like. But I, as much as I love the cinematography in this film, and not to kind of stray from your question, but the sound editing and sound design on this film is what I actually prefer. Because I think this is very sound heavy. The sound is very important in this film. Not only like the score, but the editing of the sound is like, great in this movie. I believe John Cheever, funnily enough, made that a point of contention when this film was being made. Because he made this argument that when you come in and out of a pool, the, the noise, the water laps, he made it a, a specific thing to get that right because he said it is recreational. It's a specific sound. So you can't recreate mm-hmm. it in any setting. No, exactly. You know, it doesn't make sense to be when he's under the water hearing people clearly like it should be muffled or you're just not hearing them at all but you know my favorite scene in this film is when him and julie are jumping over the obstacles and we get the music (laughs) and it pauses each time they jump in the air that's to me i just every time that scene comes up i just get so happy and giddy because it's my favorite i love the way they did that because they could have just had the music playing and you probably wouldn't even notice the music as much right. but the fact that it pauses each time they're jumping and it's in slow motion and they're having the best time of their lives it's just great to me i love that scene i do like how it really sets it apart like the sound design and the editing because like you say it's weird that there's slow motion it's weird they have these freeze frames but it almost makes out it kind of underscores the scene like in the rest of the proceedings you have this scene here which very much sticks out for that reason like they wanted to kind of emphasize it mm-hmm. in a way 
Well, you you mentioned there, you, you we have Bart Lancaster and Julie. Now, this is an element that isn't in the short story, the Julie, the ex-babysitter. And I think that adds an interesting dynamic because there's a few scenes within this film that aren't in the short story, of course. this is a, They're extrapolating from a 12-page short story and making mm-hmm. a 94-minute film. So, of course, you've got to add scenes because there's two pivotal scenes. There's with the ex-babysitter and we have quite an extended sequence. And we also have a young boy sitting on an empty pool. Neither of those scenes are in the short story. But what do you think the ex-babysitter, if you want to set up, what does that represent and do you find? It's interesting because every time I watch this movie, you know, my thoughts on that character and their dynamic kind of switches. Because the first time you're kind of uneasy about the way he's talking to her because you don't know what the deal is. Right. Especially if you're watching this for the first time, you don't know, you don't fully understand his complete mental state. And you're like, what, what direction is this going to go in? Because I'm kind of uncomfortable with the way he's talking to her. And obviously she is too, eventually. The more I watch it, I just think of it. He's always talking about his daughters. He's always talking about them. And he just, at that point, you still don't know what the deal is with his daughters. You're just thinking, this is a father who just has his fatherhood on his mind at all times and he wants to be a father to her but he's obviously he's also still like clearly attracted to her so it's like a weird balancing thing where he doesn't want to go too far but he's trying <laughs> to see how far she will take it because we later find out he's obviously someone who's a bit of a playboy so yep. it's still always going to be uncomfortable because if she had said yes i'm sure he would have gone and slept with her but yeah it's weird and maybe she even would have asked because is there not a thing where she says you know she was always kind of mm-hmm. attracted to him because she was always at his house babysitting the kids felt like kind of a hot for teacher situation where oh this young girl babysitting and here's this kind of older man and they have the mutual attraction it was at this point in the film where I started to think more deeply about the themes because as the film started, as it went on, actually, I kept kind of changing my mind on what it was about. It seemed to be every time there was a new scene, it was about something different. Because when you had the whole scene with him and Julie, the babysitter, I was thinking it was about a midlife crisis. You know, he's chatting up this young girl, then he's just going to go and jump in his (laughs) sports car. He's going to go off and meet with his other, you know, balding, beer-bellied <laughs> friends, whatever. So when it got to that scene, midlife crisis is what came across my mind. I had a bunch of other ideas as well, but in that scene, that's what I was thinking of in terms of the central thematics of the movie. Well, there, I think there is an element of that, because the writer of this, Eleanor Perry, and she's characterising um, Ned Merrill, and she says, Ned Merrill is a man who realised in middle life that his entire life is a hoax. He has been a man who gets by on charm and good intentions. Since I have read the story, I think there is something of the Ned Merrill in all of us. He is kind of an everyman. And I think there is a, a there is a point to that. It's kind of the it's about the decay of our, our youthful illusions in many aspects. I mean, I agree. Like you don't have to fully relate to a character to understand what they're going through. Like none of us are middle-aged white men in Connecticut, right? (laughs) We don't commute to New York to work. We don't have these massive houses with friends who just drink and party on the weekends. But what he's going through, we can all relate to because everyone, doesn't matter who you are, has had a moment in their life where they're like, what am I doing? What has led me to this point? And how do I go from here? Because I don't know who I am 
you know, mm. when you realize, oh, not everyone likes me. And maybe why <laughs> is that happening? Right. Was I a dick to anyone? Didn't realize. Yeah. There is a line in the short story which I think very beautifully sums up the kind of position Ned's in, who he is as a man. It says, he was like the last few hours of a summer's day. And what I love about that line is you think of the summer's day, you think it's bright, it's beautiful, it's you know, you think of it as the peak of the year. But crucially it says the last few hours. So you have this idea of Ned as a guy who still has, you know, he's still got some vitality. He's obviously a very fit man. He's a very attractive man. He's a man who's good with words. But it's like his best days are behind him. And in a way, he's kind of refusing to accept that because you're moving into the autumn years of your life. And that's where the midlife crisis thing came. He can't accept the fact that that's gone by. He can't accept the fact he's failed. He can't accept the fact he hasn't done as well as he should have done. And as he moves into these later years in his life, it's like he's going to try to do anything he can to get that time back. Well, do you want to hear what Lancaster's interpretation of this film is? Lancaster said, Cheever may not agree with my interpretation, but I see it as a mirror of a decadent society. I see it as a tragedy based on the American way of life, with its emphasis on success and misguided notion that a man can get by on charm alone. Okay, so as you're saying there, Wayne, this is the man, he's entering his autumn years, his kind of athletic prime, which much of this film is built around, it's starting to dwindle. And the reality of the situation of what he has become, his fractured family life, his fractured relationship with his daughters, and his burgeoning realisation of that. And I think Chiva achieved this quite well, what you're saying specifically to this point in the short story how it takes place over one day, but within that day in the short story, we're kind of transitioning from summer to autumn because it's very much a a short story of the summer, yet the leaves on the trees are falling like it is autumn. I like that interpretation. I feel like that makes more sense to me. And I think that's just why, like, Burt Lancaster was the perfect person to play this, outside of, like, my interest in Lancaster. Because someone, (laughs) you know, he... (laughs) been in films since the early 40s now we're getting to the 70s essentially and he's still very fit we see this in the film and the character is supposed to be this way he's this way but i don't know how it was then i assume it probably was the same where you're like okay this person's pushing up there in age they need to you know put on a shirt you know they're not supposed to be you know (laughs) frolicking around like that and it's you know it's a mirror to ned who just He's walking around literally in his swimsuit all day and can get away with it. Now, here's a question for you, Felicia. You know, you've expressed your interest in the filmography of Burt Lancaster. And in this film, I believe when Burt Lancaster took this role, he was 53 years old. Do you Mm -hmm. think we're getting a different Burt Lancaster now at 53 playing this role about a man in middle age? Are we getting a different Burt Lancaster than from the preceding decade, from the 1950s? Do you see a difference? Oh, yeah. I see the difference. This Lancaster was always there, but because he has the time behind him. And what's so interesting about him is that he didn't start off super young. Like He was already uh, almost in his like early 30s when he started in film because he was he started off in the circus and then he transitioned to film. So he was already an adult man. And very assured of himself, but he's getting kind of, he's either getting the villain roles or he's getting like the pretty boy roles. So once he's established at this point, then he's getting roles where he can get into like the meat of being a man in society. And 
what was so interesting about those actors at that time and what I miss because we don't really get that anymore is actors who not only do independent films like this that one this film you know it was not greatly received it's a risk but he also did a lot of Italian films and he's like listen I want to work with you know Visconti conversation I don't piece. care if mm-hmm. yeah I don't care if people in America see it or not I want to work with that so it's just someone who's like unafraid and I appreciate that. Whereas his earlier roles, it's he's working within the Hollywood system, so there's only so much you could do at that time. You think for him, this represents a kind of next step mm-hmm. in maturity in the roles he was taking? Because Lancaster did say he felt this was the best film he had done, and I think he felt like this was his best performance as well. Because you're talking about making films in the studio system, you're kind of living up to expectations. I feel with The Swimmer, he read the script. He maybe saw something of himself in it. He's like, oh, you know, I'm a guy who was, you know, youthful and attractive, and I'm still kind of there, but I'm a bit past the peak. So do you think Lancaster did bring a lot of himself to it? Because I know he was a guy who, he stayed in great shape. He was a longtime smoker, but he stayed in very good shape. Ironically enough, he was actually afraid of water, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> he actually had to have an Olympic swimmer to, you know, to help teach him to swim and kind of get over that phobia. But yeah, do you reckon, Felicia, that Lancaster injected a lot of himself, his personality, into his performance? Oh, very much. And I don't know if we were recording yet at this point, but you mentioned, or I guess in your intro, you'll mention the grin. That's like his signature big smile. And this is at its peak in this movie because Nan Merrill is very cheesy and Burt Lancaster can come across sometimes as a little cheesy in his delivery of lines, but it's just the cadence of his voice, which I love. Um, but it could be a little off-putting for people, especially in yeah. this movie, because he's really kind of hamming it up because Ned is a cheesy person who's just so unserious. He thinks he's a serious guy, but he's not. It's kind of like an exaggerated sense of happiness. Like, mm-hmm. oh, there's the guy. Ned's always happy. He's always cheery. He's always saying hello and kissing the ladies' hands and shaking hands. And It's maybe kind of silly, maybe kind of a facade, but that's who he is, and that's kind of what people like Do about him. Do you think it. there's an inversion of you know the whole Dante's Inferno story? You know, as in Dante's Inferno, we start <laughs> in hell and we ascend to heaven. We go from hell to purgatory to heaven. And in this film, in many aspects, because of Ned's naivete, because of Ned's ability to live in the fantasy land at the start we're essentially starting in heaven it's ned's own built heaven so to speak and as the film progresses he goes into purgatory as he's becoming more awakened to the reality of the situation and as the film ends we're in hell uh, metaphorical hell ned's hell because he comes to this realization he's like okay I fucked everything up. This is the situation. My daughters no longer want anything to do with me, and my relationship with my wife has long ceased ended. So, is there that allusion to Dante's Inferno? I know John Cheever wrestled with this when he was writing the short story. I think he kind of flew away from that because there's also allusions to the whole narcissist story of you know falling in love with your own reflection, which you know can quite be reflected in the very trope of the swimming pool in this film. I think there's a lot of that. I think there's a lot of literary influences within this film, apart from the obvious. There are a lot of aspects of the film which I think reflect that. I'm not going to say it's necessarily a literal reverse Dante's Inferno thing, but there's a lot that reflects that descent is the best word I can think. You see the weather gets more inclement as the film goes on. People start off 
talking to Ned, very nice, very friendly. They get worse. Interestingly, as he gets closer to home, people get worse to him. You know, a lot more people ignore him. He's turned away by a lot of people. The cinematography is really important. It starts off with this kind of bright, sunny day. As it goes on, things get more misty, they get more hazy, they get more unclear. So there is a deterioration. If I could step back as far as I can, looking at the themes of this film... The best way I can put it is it's about deterioration in any kind of sense. Like, say you had a job you did, which you loved at the start, but a year later, you hate it, you can't wait to leave. I think it's kind of like that. Starting off in a really good position with something that's just got worse over time, whether it's through action or inaction. But I think the cinematography, the sound design, and the actual events of the film really represent that degrading, that deterioration over uh, the film's mm-hmm. runtime. I mean, I agree with all those points. It's it's just so interesting to see the decay of every facet of this film, even like his physical decay, because he gets that, you know, ankle injury and he's limping around and he's in pain and then he's shivering and he's obviously uncomfortable and cold. And just because the day is starting to wind down, same with, you know, the illusion of happiness. And the more and more I watch this, I always forget how early on it is that people start getting kind of frustrated with him. Yeah. Like there's a one lady where he's <laughs> swimming in her pool and she's like, what are you doing? Like, why are you here? And he's like, I'm Ned Merrill. And she's like, I don't want you here. And it's revealed <laughs> he was friends with her son. And obviously something happened where he was in the hospital and he just never came to visit him. So she has a, you know, a problem with him. But like, what I love about this film is that each conversation reveals more about Ned without him having to be like, this is what happened or what's happening and trying to figure it out. It's like each time he talks to someone, you're like, oh, this is not the way he's seeing it or this is what happened. Um, It's just like a really good writing. (laughs) Like, I wish I could write something this good. Yeah, and that's a welcome addition, I think, to the film. What's not in the short story, Ned Merrill hurting his foot. And funnily enough, how Ned Merrill hurts his foot is he is running with the 20-year-old ex-babysitter. And as you're saying, because we're on about ageing, we're on about midlife, and I think that's maybe a comment on that. He's trying to keep up with youth. He's trying to present himself as youthful, Mm -hmm. athletic. And it is very much when he's trying to keep up with the actual 20-year-old, his body fails on him and he (laughs) kind of limps the rest of the film. Yeah, I mean, we get the scene even before that where he's racing the actual horse. Yeah. <laughs> it's very literal of him, like, <laughs> just trudging on. I love that scene, too. It's just, it's so funny. In, in like, the best way. It's like, I'm not, you don't laugh at it. You're laughing along with him because he's had, like, a, I think this right after he has the instance with the lady who tells him to never come back. And he's down on himself and he sees, like, the horse in his eye. And he's like, all right, I'm back. I'm back on the horse, literally. <laughs> Now, earlier in this podcast, Felicia, you mentioned that this film is independently made, and the producer, or one of the producers of this film, was Sam Spiegel. Now, Sam Spiegel had a company called Horizon Pictures, and there was a lot of contention while making this film. Now, to make this film for Frank Perry and Eleanor Perry, to get okay to make this film, Sam Spiegel he made it a point to say, look, I'll retain control over the complete script. I will have final cut and there'll be a superstar in the lead role, that being Burt Lancaster. So Frank Perry made this film. His original cut came to 94 minutes, but Sam Spiegel was not impressed at all. So Frank Perry's original 
94-minute cut got reduced to 54 minutes. Okay, so most of these shots, or some of these shots, especially there's a famous scene between Ned and his former mistress, and there's this disagreement, there's this argument, there's, you know, this tension, of course, is his former mistress. Now, originally, Frank Perry filmed that with Barbara Loden. Barbara Loden was a wife, I believe, at the time of Elia Kazan, a streetcar named Desire, East of Eden. But that got reshot. There's many contrasting stories. There is either Sam Spiegel didn't like it, Burt Lancaster apparently hated Barbara Loden's performance because the crew apparently really loved Barbara Loden's performance and Burt Lancaster got very diva-ish because they were applauding her. So that got removed and she was replaced with Janice Rule. But not only was Barbara Loden removed from that scene, also Frank Perry never got asked to come back for the reshot and it was filmed by Sidney Pollock. Yeah, that's interesting because he doesn't get obviously... The final credit goes to Frank Perry. Yeah. That's who, so if you don't know this, there's no way for you to know that Cindy Pollock came in. And it's interesting because I think with that in your mind, you can tell that that scene was shot by someone else because the tone is a little different. It's a little, it's very serious because it needs to be. Yeah. Right. And Janice Rule is just like, I love Barbara Loden. Janice Rule like kills that scene. Like she, there's no way. It's only about her. You only want to watch her because you can see, feel the hurt in her and what he's done to her and their past. And she just, she's really great and she's really not spoken about too much when we talk about older stars. There's much a more kind of abrasiveness, I think, in her performance than Barbara Loden probably had because at this point, Ned is, you know, he's kind of beaten up, he's kind of weary, he's tired, but he's still trying to make jokes. He's still trying to be that old wisecracker. No, remember me, I'm that flame from your past. But she's just so dismissive of him. It's what really kind of builds up to the final crescendo in the film. I love that's maybe the best scene in the film, like in terms of raw emotional drama I think because he's trying to say you know we had good times we were happy together and she's very very dismissive of him as more and more people have been throughout the film the closer he gets to home the more dismissive the more caustic people are and so I think this is it's a very much a high point in the film this scene I mean that's the only he has in mind to her where he's like I don't know what's going on with everyone today like this is the everyone's snubbing me with her you understand why she is the other people prior to that, even when he crashed that one party and with the hot dog cart, and he's like, this is my hot dog cart. He's like, why, even you as a viewer, you're like, what's going on? Why these people don't like him because everyone else seems to have liked him. What's going on? And it's, as you said, it's the closer he gets to his house, you know, he starts facing reality. But with, you know, Shirley, who's the, the ex-mistress, you fully are on her side. You have to be. <laughs> Can we talk about like the other people for just a second? Because Ned goes to a lot of parties. Mm-hmm. This is obviously a very well-to-do neighborhood. Yeah. He turns up. Everyone's kind of very nice, greeting him initially. Would you like a drink? Tell us about Lucinda, etc. This kind of thing. So there were parts of me that thought, is this some kind of jab at the kind of the wealthy and the privileged? Because it's funny how he turns up at these parties. Most of these people have nothing interesting to say. 
there's no good conversation going. It's the same boring, inane, repetitive dialogue. Oh, how's this? How was your kids, etc. Oh, we're having a party. Oh, we're going to the country club. We're going to play tennis, etc. I love that how they're kind of caricatures. They're very stereotypical, rich, privileged people who let's just sit by the pools and let's just talk about our problems. You know, oh, you know, I only have two Jaguars. I only <laughs> have two Rolls Royces. That kind of thing. So did you feel that was very much exaggerated, the kind of the first world problems, I guess you could say, that these people are suffering. Mm -hmm. And it's within the direction, you know, Frank Perry's direction of these actors, where you're like, he clearly told them to make be caricatures of these people, because some of the people, the way they talk, it's just very much like, oh, you know, you know, he's talking about this, what there's two people who have the same conversation with narrow Ned about the pool that they just installed, and they go through all the features of the pool, and he, he gets repeated to him twice. It's like, yeah, I heard this. I heard this, you know, and it's like, that's all that matters to them is the fact that they had a pool and they're like, we can't even travel really this year because we spent the money on the pool. So we're just going to talk about the pool that we've installed that no one's swimming in apart from that. Now, it's funny you mentioned the pool because Eleanor Perry stated that the pools themselves are reflective of the personalities. She said, we wanted the kind mm-hmm. of old pool we have here, not the fancy Hollywood kind. We wanted solid and substantial backgrounds to point up the instability of the people in the four ground so that is great filmmaking that is taking the background the things what might not you know catch our eye so to speak and it's it's almost the missing scene of the piece and it's you know it's telling a story without a character having to tell a story it's, it's placing us in a time and place contextualizing our characters you know commenting on the characters without literally putting it in our face and I think there's a lot to be said for the water in the pools as well, because if we look at Ned's journey that he takes to his house, he doesn't run, he doesn't walk, he doesn't cycle, he decides to swim in the pools. And you think of water, you know, you think of the idea of washing away your sins, of purifying yourself. It almost feels in a way that's why Ned likes these pools. Like every time he gets into one of them, whatever state he's in when he dives into the pool, when he dives when he comes out of the pool again, he is cleansed, he is washed off all of his misdeeds. So I think that was one of the most interesting elements of having him be a swimmer, the fact that he can basically jump into a pool, come out, and he can be cleansed Mm -hmm. of his sins. Yeah, I think that's even more apparent in like the scene with Shirley, the ex-mistress, where they have this whole argument, but he's still at the end. He doesn't leave. He's like, well, I'm going to get my swim in before I leave (laughs) because he has to do it. So so what... Look, let's clutch at straws here. So what does a swimming pool represent? Can it be a, is it a baptism? Is it a rebirth? Is he made aware of something he wasn't previously aware to? Is he literally reborn by being constantly baptised? I wonder if it's almost like a kind of spiritual awakening thing, like this is the only thing that is good for his soul. How often do people in this film remark that what he's doing is ridiculous? Like, you, you don't want to walk there, you want to swim through everybody's <laughs> pool. You're going to go into people's backyards and just dive into the pool. He's like, yeah, why not? It's on the way home. It's the Lucinda River, don't you see? I think this is something that he has control over, and it's the only thing he has control over because he's starting to lose his mind but not realizing it. Um, and like you said, everyone's saying, why wouldn't you walk or we'll drive you? Everyone offers, basically, a lot of people offer to drive him because, I mean, I don't know Connecticut that well, but geography-wise... I can tell none of these houses are really close to each other. That's why they have such big properties. You would need, you would absolutely need to drive to each person's house, which also is like both a weird and 
concept of all these people partying and we all know they drove there and they have to drive home and they're all like yeah. plastered and like you're driving drunk <laughs> in Connecticut. <laughs> so I'm sure, but there's also that comment later with his daughters and, you know, the drinking and the driving. But I think it's just the one thing that he can remove himself from. And I think each time he gets out of the pool, his head clears. So it's like a blank slate each yeah. time. And he's like, oh, each time he meets someone, it's sort of kind of like for the first time. And he's not realizing that people have these thoughts about him and a history with him. We could say, look, he, he's doing this to show off his prowess, his, his athleticism, the way he wants to swim all mm-hmm. these, however many miles is back home. But in a way, in a weird way, in a roundabout way, is it Ned's penance? You know, in religious symbology, you you know, you walk for miles, you trape through the desert to make amends for something, to make penance for something. In many ways, is Ned making a penance for his past? Is he made it such a feat, such a, a hard, arduous task to ask for forgiveness in his own weird way? Yeah, but maybe almost on a subconscious level, because for so much of this film, Ned doesn't really know what he's done wrong. He doesn't know why people are turning against him, why people are suddenly being so abrasive towards him. So it's like he has this subconscious need to cleanse himself, to clean himself off. It's almost like he was, you know, walking down the street, slapping himself, you know, whipping himself. It's like swimming in the pools is his penance. It's a kind of punishment, but in a twisted way, it's a punishment he enjoys. He loves swimming. Mm-hmm. I like how also he never lowers himself into a pool. He insists on diving into the pool. You could say that's another way of him showing off. Like, hey, look what I can do. I may be a bit older, but I'm still as athletic as I ever was. Yeah, I think it's definitely subconscious because he doesn't know what he's done. And I guess it's a question for you to, do you think at the end that he knows? I don't think he does. Oh, okay. So at the end of the end of the film, once he swam all these pools and, you know, fake swam mm-hmm. an empty pool, he, he comes up to his big mm-hmm. house, his big house in Connecticut. It, the, the, the rain is pouring. It is no longer nice and sunny. And he's locked out of his house. There's broken windows in the house. Clearly nobody has lived here for a very long time. And one of the last shots is all the items from his his former life, should we say. There's toys from his daughters when they were kids, etc. And you're saying he stands at the door unable to get in. So you're saying you don't think he was aware at that point still. You think he's still in some fan- fantasy land. I genuinely do, and I could see people reading it another way, but I think that that's the reason why, because that extended scene of him banging on the door and trying the door, you know, otherwise he would have, he should have clued into him before he even got to the front house of the door. There's a gate, uh, and he's looking at the state of his house, and it's clearly abandoned. And it's not like it was just moved out of, like, things are overgrowing, there's, like, weeds everywhere, the tennis court is abandoned. The house looks like it's someone tried to break in, but he still is trying to get into this house. And I don't think he knows what he's done or what the state of things are, let alone the question of where did he come from? Oh, well. <laughs> like, where did he come from prior to this? And I like how when he passes by the tennis court, because you see there's nobody there, it's waterlogged, there's leaves everywhere, it's autumnal weather, the net is destroyed, it's sitting on the ground, but the sound mm-hmm. of someone playing tennis, the sound of the ball being batted back and forth, like he's still 
imagining this. He's picturing it in his mind's eye how it wants how he wants it to be. And when he's banging on the door, he's screaming. We see inside the house. He doesn't. So it's like we have been able to see everything about, and we've seen this loss, this emptiness in his life, but he hasn't seen it yet. So has he finally realized? Is that why he breaks down, or is he still holding out some kind of hope that? This is all just like a bad nightmare because I felt I really felt this film. It felt like a nightmare. Uh, Vincent Canby said when he reviewed this film, he said, "Although the film is literal in style, the film has the shape of an open-ended hallucination." I think that is a great way of putting it because as the film goes on, it's like you're never sure what's real and what's not. All to do with the cinematography, the score, the sound editing. Is he having these conversations? Is he imagining them? Is this just a kind of worst case scenario? You're never really sure throughout the whole film. And I think that's the beauty of it. Like you don't need to, as much as I want to know, hey, where was he before he showed up to that first pool? Because he's already in a swimsuit. So he came from somewhere. Where was he before? Does he know what's going on at the end? What's going to happen to him after he realizes he can't get into this house? It doesn't matter. It's just about that you know sometimes you don't need to have a happy ending in any movie ever and this one would have just been like so off-putting if there was like a tide you know it was nightly nicely tied together at the end you just kind of need to be like was this a dream did any of this happen did some of this happen it's just the experience of it i've always maintained that a film can have a sad downer ending you know if that's what it was building up to if that's what the tone was going for if he'd gotten back to his house and it turns out he just you know it was just all in his imagination his wife is there his kids are there or even worse if it was actually just a dream mm. i think that would just been a massive slap in the face because what was even the point of going through all, all through that just so they can say oh no it's actually that was all just bullshit. He's actually a very, very happy man. Like, what would we have taken away from that experience? Okay, us as the audience, we might not be... Look, it's an ambiguous ending, so to speak. But for us, individually, what do we all three... Do we think he gets his redemption? Has his odyssey gave the audience redemption? Do you feel any sympathy for Ned Merrill? Or do you think he's just this cheesy you know, horrid guy who's probably been a terrible husband, absentee father... Do you feel a shred of sympathy for him? Because the tagline of this film states, it says, when you talk about the swimmer, will you talk about yourself? And I think that's maybe why we place all this redemption onto him. Because ultimately, when we forgive Ned Merrill, or if we don't forgive Ned Merrill, in a sense, Felicia, are we forgiving ourselves? Well, it's exactly that. Like, I do have sympathy for Ned because I think that he's someone who's made mistakes as we all have, and he's done some shitty things to people, but I don't think he's inherently a bad person. Now, he might just be projecting that he's this great father and great husband, when we know, obviously, he hasn't been, but it might have just been that he was a bit absent. I don't think he's a bad person. To see anyone go through that experience and the heartbreaking end, you kind of, well, you don't have to feel anything for him. I do, but I'm also can't you know deny that he had some of it coming to him it's just unfortunate that it affected him in such a dark way like his mental health completely collapsed and he's in this whole other world and you see it in the reactions when he says lucinda's great my daughter's and everyone's like um (laughs) why is he talking about them this way when clearly that's not (laughs) the relationship and it never is explicitly said where's the wife where are the daughters because it doesn't matter because he doesn't know 
so we don't need to. I feel a kind of similar way, this idea that, yeah, he's done bad things, he was maybe an absent father, he cheated on his missus, he might not have been the best dad ever, but a lot of the mistakes he makes, they're mistakes we can understand. We've been neglectful of things at times, we've made poor decisions, we've maybe lashed out in anger, we've said and done things we didn't mean to do because of our state of mind at the time. But I don't think there's a lot of like maliciousness in what he does. It didn't feel like he was doing these things to to spite anybody. Like for example, when he had that affair, uh, you know, we had no idea what was going on with his marriage at the time. We have no idea what drove him to that. So watching him break down at the end, I do feel a degree of sympathy for him. I think a lot of it is from Lancaster's performance because you have those actors like Philip Seymour Hoffman who basically made a career out of making us sympathise with these kind of very creepy, offbeat characters. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Lancaster does so well here. You do really feel for Ned Merrill. He could have done all of these horrible things, but you could just look at him as kind of a failure in life. And I don't think we we should hate on him for that. But when the film got to its end, I did feel quite a lot for him. Do you also think the film could be an attack on a certain generation, a certain type of man, a certain, you know, suburban aesthetic, that waspy aesthetic? Do you think it's kind of criticising that whole element rather than it being about a specific individual? Do you think it's a polemic piece about the affluent suburbs of Connecticut more than it is about Ned Merrill? I have heard the film referred to as an attack on the American dream. I've heard someone say that that kind of lifestyle of, you know, wealth and of privilege and of being basically gifted everything and just, you know, just going on holidays and, oh, we can't go on a cruise because we spent all this money on a pool kind of thing. So this idea that if you think you can live the high life forever, then yeah, these are going to be the consequences you're going to suffer at some point in your life. I agree. I think it's very much so uh a critique on that lifestyle and just being like ned happens to be the person we're talking about but it could have happened to any of the people that we come across in this film it's people with a degree of privilege who know what they can get away with and they're very secluded like it's a very small portion of people who live that life you know most of us don't live that life and they're all they all hang out together they all live the same way. They all have the same conversations. And it's just about how that's supposed to be the American dream. That's what we're supposed to aspire to. But these people are clearly unwell. <laughs> you know, they're not well. They're not even happy as much as they like to say they are. You had the one woman who's like, I've gotten everything I've ever wanted. But then she's clearly sad that she didn't get Ned, who she wanted to be with. Yeah. And she's like, oh, you know, my husband that, you know, you used to always make fun of. But he's doing pretty good. So it's like no one's actually happy. Um, so it's definitely a critique on that. It's just so well done. Now, look, the, the John Cheever short story came out in 1964, I believe, in a New Yorker magazine. This film is 1968. In some ways, do you think even by 1968, this film is kind of anachronistic? Do you think it almost feels like a a relic of the early 60s or the late 1950s because a year later we would have Easy Rider and cinema would be moving in a vastly different space and looking at vastly different lifestyles whether that's five easy pieces and you know the milieu would change in cinema so even by 1968 do you believe this film Felicia is kind of outdated in some respects not technically technically it's very like very pop surrealism but story-wise the 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 scenario do you find it anachronistic in any aspect no yet technically the way the film's made is very much of 
the time and leading up to the 70s story-wise, I do think it's, you know, harkening back to a time prior to what it's actually being filmed in. But I think it's it's funny because I think it, the people playing those characters are probably a little bit younger than characters would have been at the time. And it's sort of like kind of the Mad Men of how that was so popular in a time frame, like so far removed from where it was, but we were able to relate and is looking back on it. I think because you got that bit of distance from it, you can properly critique it because when you're within it, you can critique it only as much as you can when you're within that era, getting a bit of distance, getting a bit of time to look back on something that's previously happened. You know, us looking back at the 2010s and being like, (laughs) that's weird. Even looking back at 2020 and being like, that's a weird time that we were living in not that long ago, but we can now basically out of it, critique it within it. You're like, I don't know what to do. So I think you need that distance. That's why this film works. It almost feels like it is kind of out of place in the 60s. Because when you think of the 60s, especially in the UK, you had like swinging London, you had the Beatles were big and the Rolling Stones, and it was kind of an optimistic time. And then you have a film like this coming along in 1968, late 60s, a time where you also had Easy Rider, and you had The Graduate, and you had Bonnie and Clyde. So these films were almost kind of a gateway to the new Hollywood movement where things weren't necessarily so optimistic. The Wild Bunch is another film, films that were quite downbeat. They were a lot more serious they kind of displayed the disillusionment of life at the time and the kind of failures of the american dream which would come along later in uh, fear and loathing in las vegas the hunter s thompson novel so for me it does feel like the film is slightly out of place it's almost ahead of its time i get the feeling if this had been released maybe a decade later during this new wave era it almost might have been better received because it did receive a pretty lukewarm reception. It's only it's one of those films where it's only in later years where it's been critically reappraised and people have looked back on it and said, yeah, it was a great film. Maybe because the themes were too heavy, maybe just because the themes were actually, for the time, too uncomfortable. I think it's exactly that. I think The Graduate is a great film to compare yeah. this one to because they're not dissimilar. The difference is, though, is that you're following a young man who's trying to fight getting into Ned's world and Ned is in that world that, you know, uh, he's already disillusioned by characters it. Try not to. Yeah. So it's off putting. I'm sure it was off putting for people to watch this film in 1968. Sometimes films come out and audiences are not ready for them. Uh, sometimes even films that come out today that we'll probably think are great 10 years from now. And right now we're like, this is either too real uh, it's too honest. It makes me uncomfortable because we're in this and we see ourselves and we're like, I don't want to be criticized like this. So I think that's probably why it just didn't do well. Whereas opposed to something like The Graduate, people can understand trying to fight against the system, your parents and that angst where this angst is like straight up depressing. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, as well in the late 60s and that we're, we're transitioning very much more into youth culture, like Easy Rider the the next year, The Graduate round about this time. Mm -hmm. And already, this is what I'm saying, anachronistic. We're following middle-aged people. We're following waspy people. We're following a milieu that doesn't really fit into new Hollywood in this sense. Because, you know, we had five easy pieces and we're following a very much more working class story, even though that character comes from wealth, but he kind of, he pushes it away. He's disillusioned with that lifestyle. He he reverts to a more blue-collar existence. And I think that's maybe possibly why The Swimmer didn't catch on, because in some regards it is too stuffy. Too stuffy. Not technically, but thematically. Or 
even situational. We're following characters who you can't really identify with when you're 20. You're not really following into the counterculture of the time. Even though, you look, we could argue this film is very cult countercultural, whether it intends to be or not. It's very surrealistic, as we've mentioned. And it is making a point about the disillusionment of that kind of upper-crust, affluent lifestyle. So, technically, it is very much countercultural, even though on the surface it doesn't seem that way. I think it also plays into... At this point in the 60s, Lancaster is doing, you know, stuff outside of just straight up Hollywood yeah. films. But this is a very different role for him from this. You know, after this, you would see him in the weirder stuff. But this would have been like, if you're following his career in that time, you would have been like, what's going on yeah. here with this character, with this film? Why did he do this? Right, I'm sure a lot of people tried to dissuade him from doing this. So. so Felicia, you've made your love of Burt Lancaster very, very clear. <laughs> I don't mean to put you on the spot. Okay, top three Burt Lancaster mm -hmm. films. This one, obviously, would be at the right, top. So we're going to Swimmer number one. Then I would have to do... Okay, so we're talking performances yeah, as opposed to films. Yeah, performances. Okay, so this one's at top, and then I'm going to go Elmer Gantry, and then third would maybe be tied between Local Hero and um, Atlantic City. Okay, you're just buttering up. Is it the Local Hero yeah. just because we're Scottish, uh, Felicia? No, that's just <laughs> one of my all-time all time favorites. I love, I, that's another performance, like that character is just extremely weird, uh, and he makes the most out of it there, but I like later I love all Lancaster, but I think my preference is the ones that I always recommend to people are his later stuff when he really becomes like Burt Lancaster, right? As opposed to <laughs> Burt Lancaster, who's just in the credits. He just happens to be in this movie. He's like fully Burt Lancaster. So Felicia, you love Burt Lancaster. There's no <laughs> question about that. And we've talked about like the themes of the swimmer. We've talked its cinematography, its score, its sound editing. Mm -hmm. We've covered all this ground. So this is your favorite film of all time. You've made that very, very clear. So could you sum up why it's your favorite film? Why is it, of all the films that you've seen throughout your life, why is this the one that you gravitate towards the most? That's a, that's another interesting question because I, for the longest time, it was always hard for me to pick a favorite film. And my favorite film has switched around throughout my life. This one stuck for a while. And I think it's because as someone who watches a lot of movies, I don't often rewatch a lot of movies unless it's for a purpose um, or if it's playing at a cinema and I'm like, okay, this is my first time getting to see it in a big screen. So I'll rewatch it. I'm more apt to just watching newer films to me. This is a film that I, my year is not complete if I don't watch it <laughs> at least once. Like I need to watch it. And sometimes with films that you rewatch, you occasionally it happens that you like them a little bit less. Right. Um, because you just kind of get tired of it or you're seeing stuff that you didn't see. This one, each time I watch it, I love it even more. And I'm just so amazed that this film was made and that I get to have it in my life. And I know a lot of people who like it. I know a lot of people who don't like it. It doesn't bother me either way. But I also am not mad that I'm. my name is synonymous with this film. There could be worse films <laughs> to be synonymous with. So uh, it's just a film that means everything to me. I think if I were to give a film to describe what it is I love about 
the medium, I would tell people, watch this rumor and you'll understand what it is that I love about cinema. So Felicia, you have summed this film up perfectly and you have summed up fandom perfectly, the way we gravitate towards certain (laughs) films. It's inexplicable. We don't know what's going to gravitate towards us. All of us three here, none of us were even near born in 1968. None of us us (laughs) come from the background of this film, but yet we're all drawn to it. And Felicia, you've got a terrific podcast over at Seeing Movies. So what what have you got coming up on that podcast? What can people look forward to and where can people find you? Yes. Um, so I'm on all the, the platforms that everyone else is on and I have a website too. It's called seeingfacesinmovies.com. Yeah. And right now, depending on when this airs, it should still be on. Right now I'm in the midst of my John Cassavetes month. So got four films from him coming out and then following that will be Bergman month. Okay. So ending the year off with a bang. Gotta get some depression in for Christmas. (laughs) Oh, Felicia, it has been absolutely terrific speaking to you. And that was episode 70. And we have discussed Frank Perry's 1968 film, The Swimmer. But for now, I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. Join us next week where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream.